This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Some matters of theological concern that have been of much debate throughout church history, but we remember that Paul, when he's writing this letter, we want to think about a little bit We're always thinking about who is the person writing the letter and to whom is he writing. And so then as we're listening in on what Paul is saying to the Romans, then how does that impact us? What difference does it make in our lives? How do we get excited about learning from Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, right? So Paul, remember, was a Pharisee and he was a teacher of the law and a significant person. But his life was really marked by an outward sense of conviction and desire to uh, to follow the law and to represent himself as a wise teacher, right? And then he encountered Jesus, and through that encounter, realized that his heart was really not for God. While he had many of the outward uh, appeal, a teacher in a certain family, educated in the right places, we looked outwardly like a true follower. In his heart, he was not surrendered to Jesus Christ. And he had this encounter with Jesus, and then he studied God's word in a new way to see how God's story had been working all throughout history to bring Jesus to the center point of it. And when, God, when Paul acknowledged that, he realized that his heart needed to be changed. And so then he became a transformed person. He was, he was humbled. He was actually broken. And he then began to be persecuted for his faith by his former friends. But his life was so radically changed that he wanted to share the good news that he had experienced and learned from the word with everybody, with the entire world. He, he had a great heart to see his brothers and sisters come to know Jesus. But what happened to Paul eventually was that he saw that, that most of the Jews were not going to embrace Jesus. And so then he began to plant churches among the Gentiles all throughout the Mediterranean. And he would travel from place to place. And, and a lot of times when people have a Bible, there's a, 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 there are maps at the end, and it says Paul's missionary journeys. And you can see the three different journeys that he took all throughout the Mediter- Mediterranean to trust the Spirit to go to plant churches, communities of people that would surrender themselves to Jesus Christ to serve him in their context. And then he would hand that ministry over to, uh, to elders that would lead and grow those congregations. And he did this three different times. And one of his great desires was to go to the city of Rome because at the time, Rome was the most significant city in all the world. It had the the biggest military. It was the commercial center. It was also a center of pagan worship, so it attracted many, many people. It was the place to go that had the most influence. And Paul wanted to be able to go there, Not necessarily because he wanted to meet with the emperor, because he wanted to encourage the followers of Jesus who were there. And if you read through the story of Acts, you know that the latter part of Acts is really the story of how Paul ends up going to Rome. All these different uh, travails and challenges that he experiences, he ends up getting to Rome. The place to whom he wrote this letter, he ends up being able to be with them. But before he went there, he wanted to write them this letter because he had heard of their faith. Remember that from chapter 1. He knew that there was this community of people that lived in Rome. And again, the epicenter of culture and power, commercialism, military, sex, everything that was going on in Rome, there was this group of people that were trying to be faithful. They were wanting to live for Jesus, to, to represent Jesus to the world that was around them. It sensed it to be counter-cultural. 
to not give into the temptations of the world, but to live as Jesus' followers, a distinct and holy people, a chosen people that were called by God to represent him in the world. And we know the story of history, what happened is that that's what they were doing. And even though they were broken people in need of grace, in need of mercy, they began to transform that city. They began to transform that region, that country, that, that whole area, and that churches were planted all over, and, that, and Rome became uh, the center of Christianity for a thousand years. Now, where is that center now? You could debate. It's probably in the southern hemisphere somewhere, maybe even in, in China. What's the geographical center of Christianity today? It's somewhere in the center, somewhere in the southern hemisphere. But we think about this group of people who were trying to live faithfully to the Lord, the impact that they had. Not because of their own power. They didn't have any power. They were not in elected office. They did not hold positions of authority. They were people that were just seeking to be faithful, to raise their families, and to make a difference, to try to, to enact justice for their community, and to love their neighbor, and to demonstrate with their very lives what it looks like to follow Jesus, that you're a different kind of person when you encounter Jesus. And his grace and his mercy sustain you every single day. And so that's what the story of Romans is about. It's Paul writing this letter to encourage them. And so here we find ourselves in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 9. And that's where we are. Paul is sharing with them about the mercy of God through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word. This is, I'm going to read Romans 9 uh, verses 1 through 16. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The word of God for the people of God. Jesus. 
may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word that just speaks to us of the truth of who you are, of who we are, of how you call us to be part of your family. And we know that, God, this is um, sometimes a difficult word to hear. But we, we know that your word is true and it's good, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to be changed so that we might be able to live according to your word, that we would live as your people, that we would not come into this room or be watching on, online and not be changed. For we know, Lord, that we need you, and so we trust you to change us and to shape us and to form us to be more like you because of our encounter with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, well, there's a story that's been told of a, a mother who sought from Napoleon the pardon of her son. It was her son's second offense, and justice demanded his death. And the mother said, I don't ask for justice, I plead for mercy. But the emperor said, he does not deserve mercy. Sir, cried the mother, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. Mercy is all I ask. Well then, the emperor said, I will show mercy. And the son was saved. What is mercy? What's this idea of mercy? We talk a lot in the church about grace and mercy. And I've said a lot of times that, that uh, grace is getting what we don't deserve. And mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is the idea of showing kindness or concern for someone who is in a significant need. Theologically, mercy is the kindness and love of God. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 and 5 says this, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of any righteous thing that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us because of His mercy and not what we did. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but rather Jesus takes on the punishment for himself. Now, if you remember from last time in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul has been sharing with his brothers and sisters that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He, he shares with them that the Spirit is, is groaning and praying on their behalf, even when they don't need to pray. And he also shares at the end of chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us. So here then in chapter 9... He makes this turn. He, he turns his attention toward his Jewish brothers and sisters. He refers to them as Israel. He's been calling them his Jewish brothers throughout the former part of the book, but now he uses the word Israel. And he's talking about those who have not trusted in the gospel. In the next three chapters, Paul deals with this important matter. But look, but look at what he says. In chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You can sense that Paul is concerned for his brothers and sisters. Right? Remember, this idea came up in chapter 1. Paul's concerned in his love for his friends. That he cares about us enough to tell us the truth about who we are and invite us then to embrace Jesus Christ because of it. 
See, the Israelites, those who are Jews, continue to trust in their own righteousness, in their own actions. They're still like Paul was. Remember, he was a Pharisee and he was doing all the right things. He had learned the lessons. He was being a good person. But by trusting in your own actions, in your own work, by saying, I'm a good person, what you're saying is, I'm a good enough person to stand before God when God is holy and I'm not. And Paul is challenging that idea for his brothers and sisters and for us. That none of us are that perfect. None of us have a right to stand before God. So something has to happen. Someone must come in and stand in for us. And so we see that his sorrow is deep. Listen to what he says. I wish I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is saying here, if I could change places with my friends, with my family members, and that they would know Christ, I would gladly do it. But it doesn't work that way. You see, Paul has learned about the goodness of the gospel. We think about this, this transformation that's been made, right? All along, he thought, well, I'm doing the right thing. I'm going to Sunday school. I'm learning the catechism. I'm learning the law, and I'm doing the right thing. And that's what God wants me to do, is to do the right thing. And why wouldn't God want us to do the right thing? Well, God wants us to do the right thing, but not when we use the right thing to justify ourselves. Because what happens is that when we think we're doing the right thing, we can easily look at someone else and say, oh, well, they're doing the wrong thing so that I'm right and they're wrong instead of recognizing that, yeah, I'm trying to be faithful, but there's some brokenness in me. In fact, there's a lot of brokenness in me. And so Paul is lamenting this reality because, you see, he knows what his brothers and sisters have been given. He knows what they've been given. Look at what they have in verse they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, he, he breaks out in worship here because he's looking at what his brothers and sisters have. They've been given everything. He does this in chapter 2 also. He says, look, my friends, you've been given all these things. You've been given the presence of God. You've been given a relationship with the, with the community of God's people. You've been given the word. You have all these things. Just like I had all these things, and yet I still missed it. Just like you are. And so what he's saying to the, to the church in Rome is the truth, right? Now, now keep in mind that there in the church in Rome are likely both Jewish believers and Gentile believers in this community that Paul is writing to, but he's speaking the truth to everybody because he has great sorrow in his heart. His kinsmen. In verse 27 of chapter 9, he writes this, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Isaiah, the prophet of the Old Testament. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea... Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. The prophet Isaiah is saying only some of God's people, the Israelites, will have a true expression of faith. And that's why his heart is in anguish. Because he knows part of his family, literally probably you know, the guys that he grew up with, maybe even his literal brothers and sisters are not now 
part of the family of God. And so maybe you identify with this challenge and with this difficulty. You know, we, we all know someone who is in the far country. They've not heard, maybe they've heard the gospel and they've been part of the church at some point, but they are not walking with God. Maybe they've rejected God altogether. Maybe they've been hurt by the church. Yeah, I was talking with a young man this week about what are the things that would really hold you back from embracing Jesus and following him in an earnest way? What, what, what is it that's really just holding you back? And one of the realities for him that was hard was, was the hypocritical nature of people in the church. Right? He's got friends that he knows that would say, oh, okay, I love God, but then they would do these other things, have this like double life in a way. Like engage in lifestyle behaviors that aren't consistent with God, but that they would then say, well, I, I, you know, I put Bible verses on my Instagram. That hypocritical nature, that's, that's pushing this guy away from the church. Maybe other people have just slipped away from faith. It's not like an outright rejection. You just slowly drift to a different spot and you're not connected in community and you're not exposing yourself to the word of God. You're not listening to, to a sermon. You're not studying the word and you're not around people that do. And so it just becomes something slowly that you move away from. Oh, I used to be involved with that. I'm not anymore. I can't tell you how many people I know that like, oh, I used to sing in the choir or I used to go to that church. And now where do you go now? I don't. I just don't. It's not that, uh, that they're so far from God. It's just that when they look out along the horizon, God's not there. And they're just drifting, letting the current take them to whatever's next instead of saying, I know this is the direction where God is, and so I've got to set my rudder and set my sails to go in that direction, which is going to mean that I've got to go up against the current. This is what Paul is talking about. And here's what's so hard for him is that his brothers, the Israelites, they have adoption. They have glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. They have all these things. It's just saying, how, how can you walk away from this? How can you have all these things and, and just walk away? I said to the young man that I was talking to, and I said, well, you know, don't judge Jesus, Jesus by his followers. <laughs> uh, we're all hypocritical in some way. Uh, but you have to answer to Jesus because he's given you an invitation. And he's perfect. But how can you not follow this? You see, everyone needs mercy. Remember what Paul said in chapter 3. No one is righteous no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one, Paul said to us in Romans 3, quoting from the Old Testament. So we all need mercy. Everybody needs mercy. Why? Because we are all guilty. We're all guilty of sin. We have Falling short of the glory of God. So we have this kind of funny uh, conversation that goes on uh, in my family. Uh, and it was, brought to, it was brought to our minds because, I don't know if you've noticed, that occasionally there'll be a box of donuts out in the foyer uh, at the reception desk. And on that, the box of donuts, it says, you deserve a donut. And uh, when Greg, Greg, who was one of our uh, uh, guys that serves overseas, was here, 
uh, he has a similar kind of sense of humor that I do, and he came up to me and he said, he said, Matt, the box says you deserve a donut. I, I just knew it was coming. He had never said this to me before, but I knew it was coming. He goes, but you know what you deserve? I said, what, Greg? He goes, death. <laughs> because we joke about that in my family. Like, you know, like when we have this spirit of, like, I deserve this, there's a sense, I mean, think about marketing, right? Marketing says you deserve a break today, right? That's an old phrase. But you deserve to get something good. But if we believe what the Bible says about who we are, because no one seeks after God, what do we actually deserve for our sinful actions? We deserve death, not a donut. Because we're sinful and we're broken. And many of us have tried to look like Paul, who is presenting himself. We present ourselves as to be better than who we really, really are, when deep down, none of us are righteous. No, not one. We deserve not a donut, but we deserve death. We need mercy. So if we need mercy, how can we know mercy? Paul writes uh, in verse 6, he says this, for it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What Paul is saying is that just because you're born into a family that loves God doesn't mean that you're a child of God. And then he goes through and he reminds the, the list, his listeners of the story of Abraham, which we talked about in chapter 4. And he, and he goes through Abraham's story a little bit. That he talks about Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And he's saying, just because you're related to Abraham by blood doesn't mean that you're a child of Abraham. It's like that phrase you maybe have heard before. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Just because your mom was faithful doesn't mean that you're a child of God. Just because your dad was a deacon doesn't mean you're a child of God. Just because your grandmother says her prayers doesn't mean you're a child of God. What do you have to do to be a child of God? It's to ask for mercy and embrace Jesus. You see, no one gets to heaven because of what someone else has done unless the person you're trusting in is Jesus. Being a child of God is a result of you putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. The only way to know mercy is to know Jesus. Verse 9 says, For this is what the promise said, and about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, listen to this in verse 11, had done nothing either good or bad. So these babies had been, they were not yet born, done nothing either good or bad. Verse 11 continues, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, and this is a tough verse, Jacob I loved, but Esau 
I hate it. This doesn't seem fair to us, right? How is it that God could say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, when neither one of them, it says, had done anything either good or bad? Well, if everyone, as Romans 3 has already said, and the Old Testament is not righteous because of sin, because of the things that we've done, because of the things that we've left undone, then what everyone deserves is justice. We deserve justice, right? And don't we want justice when someone hurts and offends us? That's not right. You can't do this to me because I know the law and I know what's right and wrong and you can't do it to me. And when someone hurts or offends me, I know what's right and wrong and I want justice. And yet when I'm the one who's in error, when I'm the one who's wrong, I'm always like, oh, please give me some mercy. But what do I really deserve? I deserve justice. Every person who's sinful and broken because of the fall deserves justice. And yet, the good news is that God decides to extend mercy to some. And this is a controversial subject in the Christian faith because to whom does God extend this mercy and why? Why does God extend mercy to some and not to others? Then Paul begins to answer this objection right here in in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God wrong in doing what he's doing? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In the end, it's not about what we do, because again, everyone deserves justice, but God elects to invite some to receive mercy. And for that, we should give thanks. It's not up to us. It wasn't anything that we did. It's nothing that we could do. It's simply an act of mercy that God extends to us. I told this story before, but a guy named Eugene Lang spoke at a commencement address at a sixth grade graduation in East Harlem one time. And he decided at the spur of the moment, instead of giving the speech that he had prepared as he looked out uh, to this class of sixth graders, kids uh, in the inner city, he just decided, you know what? I'm gonna get rid of this speech and I'm gonna tell them this. If you get into college, I'm gonna pay for it. And they were stunned. They were stunned. And and it's a great story because some of those kids got into college and he fulfilled that promise. And you go, man, that's awesome. But someone might say, well, why didn't he just tell the whole school that he was going to pay for their college? Why just the sixth graders? And why, why not, like, you know, why not the whole, uh, the whole community? Why don't why he pay for all the sixth grade kids in the whole community or even the whole city? And why didn't he in, in, say to everybody in the, in the country, you can have free education? Why did he do that? It's not fair that he didn't do that. But you know, it's not for you or me to decide what Eugene Lang does with his resources. It's for him to decide. It's the thing that God put on his heart in that moment to pay for those kids. And so instead of saying, why didn't he do it for everybody? We should rejoice and give thanks for the truth that he did it for them. This is a picture of how mercy works. How do we know mercy? It's up to God to decide. And the the truth of the matter is that we don't know who God is going to call to himself who he's going to to bring into his family, who he is going to elect as his own. It's for him to decide. And it's not based on anything that's good in us, but it's only what's good 
in God. Well, the good news about that is then we are free to share the good news with everybody. Because we don't know whom God is going to call either. You may look at a person and go, that person is too far away for God to ever reach. And I guarantee you there are people in my life that probably said that of me. There is no way that guy's going to be a Christian. He certainly won't be a pastor. And yet God reached down and pulled me up out of the pit and claimed me and saved me and redeemed me. It's up to God. And because it's up to God, then our responsibility, our joy, is to share that with everybody, believing and knowing that those who are his are going to embrace him. It's not up to us getting the right marketing or having the best testimony or figuring out how to say. We just say, here's who God is. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what I'm learning about Jesus in my church, in my community, in my small group. Would you like to learn more? And the ones who God has called will come to him. So here to the end as we go, this is needing mercy, it's knowing mercy, and finally we are trying to name mercy. How does Paul uh, kind of drive the point home here? If you look at verse 25, which I, which I didn't read at the early, uh, early in the service, it says this, as indeed it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there will be called sons of the living God. Paul, you know, he loves the Old Testament, right? He is a student of the Old Testament. And that's why we should be students of the Old Testament too. Because not only is it God's word, but it also helps us to understand what Paul is saying. He gives us another example of the meaning of mercy with this example of Hosea. Now, Hosea uh, has been called the deathbed prophet of Israel because he was the last to prophesy before the northern kingdom fell to Assyria in about 722 B.C. And Hosea's ministry followed this glorious golden age in the northern kingdom with peace and prosperity that hadn't been seen since the days of Solomon. But unfortunately... With that prosperity, as often happens, came moral decay. And Israel forsook God and worshipped idols. So God instructed Hosea, get this, to marry in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, a wife of whoredom whose unfaithfulness to her husband would serve as an example of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. There's a calling for you, prophet. This is what I'm asking you to do. Her unfaithfulness to her husband would serve as an example of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Hosea then explains God's complaint against Israel and warns of the punishment that would come unless the people return and remain faithful to God. And so the book of Hosea shows the depth of God's love for his people. It's a love that tolerates tolerates no rivals. Hear these words from Hosea. The word of the Lord, this is chapter one, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We've talked about him recently. Kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take your wife, a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. 
For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Right? The way that God is going to judge Israel is he's going to allow the Assyrians to come down and lay waste and devastate his own people because of their disobedience to God. Think about that. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. Hi, this is my daughter. Her name's No Mercy. And this is Auntie Grace, my other daughter. No Mercy is the name of the child. For I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Remember, the kingdoms were divided at this time. The, the ten tribes of the north were Israel and two tribes in the south were Judah. I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. When she weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them is, you are not my people. This place is called, you are not my people. We see just God speaking powerfully about unfaithfulness and the result of unfaithfulness in the lives of his people. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now, this is an Old Testament passage from Hosea, right? The deathbed prophet. You can see why this is not a bunch of Bible verses that most people have memorized. Because God is announcing the judgment of Israel because of their wickedness, because of their sin. And yet, he, here is this people who've given themselves away to the gods of their age. They've given themselves away to prosperity, to comfort, to security, to privilege, to national pride. Repeatedly, they have rejected God. And as we listen in on this letter from Paul to the Romans and from Hosea to the people of God, we also recognize that, yeah, wow, we have, we have given in the gods of privilege and of power and of fame, and of wealth, and of prosperity, and of comfort, of all those things. We've sought to get affirmation from our careers. We've, we've sought to build up a power over other nations so that we can determine who gets what. We have sought to, to protect ourselves from, from the bad people instead of going to the bad people, recognizing they're just like us, and serving and loving them, and sharing with them uh, the gospel. And yet, this God who is working with those people like they were and we who, like we are, extends mercy. It's an act of love that God would discipline his people to humble them, to show them that they're in need of mercy so that they could receive mercy. So who gets mercy? See, these people who've left God for the far country, they are the ones who've trusted in power or privilege. 
those who had been shown the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship and the promises and barely often lift a finger to praise God or to serve another person have this invitation that God says, through my son Jesus Christ, I'm coming to enter into your life and to not only give you grace, but to extend mercy to you. We who keep what is ours when we, when we think we deserve it, we who neglect the poor in our community, the stranger, the hurting, the elderly, we who have often failed to walk in the way of Jesus with our thoughts, words, and actions, this mercy is extended to us. This mercy is extended to you. So who receives mercy? Those who know they need it. The ones who know they need mercy receive mercy. Because Jesus comes and he reveals himself and he shows us our sin and he helps us to see that, well, we deserve justice. But man, here's this invitation to enter into relationship with the living God. So if this is true and we are called to be his people and we're called to live like the Romans were called to live in the city for God as distinct and as different from the culture. What does this look like for you today? What does it look like for you? How are you changed this morning by encountering the mercy of God? What is it that God is asking you to do in response? Only God knows what he's saying to you right now, but I just want you to take a moment and to think through. In light of the mercy of God, what should I do? Maybe it's to exalt in praise. It's to rejoice in song. It's to, or maybe it's to forgive someone who's hurt you. Maybe it's to go into a difficult place and to, instead of seeing those people as those people, seeing them as people like you who are in need of mercy and that you are the one that can reveal that mercy to them. What is the ministry that God is giving to you as a result of encountering his word. What's the one thing? You may have learned a lot of things. Maybe you learned something about Hosea today. And I'm glad you learned something. I hope you did. But what's the thing that you're going to do in response to the mercy of God that's been given to you, not because of any righteous thing that you've done, because God wants to give it to you? What's the one thing? If you can walk out of here today with one thing and you say, Lord, I want to do this one thing, and it doesn't matter what the results are. Obedience is success because it's a response to the mercy of God. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.